So today, we begin a series that will go into the summer branching off of the Apostles' Creed. Um, for some of us, this sounds new and fresh. It's hardly new or fresh. Um, but for some of us, this is like the oldest hat. This is the earliest thing they can remember. It feels important, though, to be reconnected to a source of unity for Christian belief in this incredible, unbelievable time that we're in. I've felt and I've heard from a lot of other people how this quarantine time makes us feel unmoored. The image I have in my mind is like one of those floating docks that's come loose from its anchor at the bottom of the lake. Um, and it kind of starts to drift out. And so even in a small lake, it's not like you're way out at sea, even in a small lake, you feel isolated. You feel kind of hung out there. The danger is not that we'll like float somewhere where we can't see the shore, but we'll just be out there just enough that we're a little too far from each other to hear each other or see each other or to know each other or to touch each other. Thomas Merton's phrase seems really prescient, prescient right now, um, that no one is an island. I wonder if you feel this too. I wonder if you feel this socially or psychologically or even spiritually. It's here, I think, that the Apostles' Creed comes in to help and to guide us. That it might even like, re-anchor us to a faith that we didn't have to make up and we don't have to be responsible for perfecting. We don't have to wake up every morning constructing what we're supposed to believe that this might be a tether in these times of doubt and exploration, that it might be a unifying anchor that can be held on to many who feel adrift. A little history lesson for the creed. It's come about and we started to get commentary and sermons on it as early as like 150 AD. So within a couple generations, after Jesus and the earliest apostles. This creed begins to form, and it's kind of a, a grassroots thing. It's not the product of councils, and it's not particularly to rebut certain heresies. Um, it's not a super political effort. It's kind of a groundswell of what Christians were coming to believe. There's this myth um, that it's called the Apostles' Creed because each one of the original 12 uh, well, not the original 12, because Judas was one of the original 12. The, the 11 plus one apostles, inspired by the Spirit, contributed a clause to this. That's a nice story. I doubt that it's true, and most people don't think that it's true. But more true and important for us is that this creed contains a message from and for sent ones. That's what apostle means. If you look at it on paper, you even see the root of postal um, to be sent is what an apostle does. So these original apostles were sent out of the upper room in which they met the risen Jesus. And they were sent, um, as we read um, uh, last week with Pastor Linda, um, into their homes and into the places where they lived to pray, break bread, and share in the apostles' teaching. And this creed actually is kind of derivative and commentary on a very early, even like first uh, generation baptismal formula uh, that is in the shape of the Trinity. 
in the in the shape of three. You see, some of the earliest Christians they would they, they would prepare in the season of catechism, normally leading up to Easter, and then they would stay up the whole night before their baptism uh, through the night, staying awake, keeping watch, fasting, praying, and preparing for for the sign of joining into Christ and resurrection. And then when they would go into the waters, they would they would um, uh, be turned away from their sin and towards God and be dunked in the water, um, asking, giving the chance to profess their faith in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. So they were declaring this triune faith that they were uh, receiving and they were symbolizing and affecting their sharing in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. They were joining the story with their hearts in their minds and their bodies. And this creed is formed around this triune God. It says, we believe in the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and, and between there, there's a narration about the life of Jesus who opens up this triune life to us. We started to gather on Tuesday mornings on a on an hour-long Zoom call. Hey, you all are invited. We'd love for you to participate. It's kind of like beta testing for the sermon, but also like um, uh, input and questions. There's no no question too small or there's no question too bad. You don't have to be smart enough or prepared enough to be in the group. Um, uh, just come, and I'm sure you have something uh, to contribute. This past week, uh, we talked about just the first couple words, we believe or I believe. And uh, this Tuesday for the coming week, we'll, we'll talk about God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and, and we'll prepare ahead uh, each week. Uh, several of our participants this past week told us how they had been part of church communities that have said the creed together corporately, like we're going to do uh, at the end of today, every Sunday for more than 30 years. And what a formula, like formative effect that it's had on their faith. Not just the content, but also the shape. The creed's not a magic bullet. It's, but this like repetitive exploration has given room and provided scaffolding to help them know what Christian faith and faithfulness is and can be for them. I grew up in a church like this too. And I can tell you there were some seasons that it felt really hard to say, I believe, with a whole lot of gusto or integrity. But I think deep down this practice is really beautiful. It takes seriously how much we are all fundamentally believers deep down. Like the most fundamentalist Christian, the most skeptical atheist, the most ardent sports fan, the most disciplined scientist or banker or politician or mom, etc. fill in the blank are all carrying around all sorts of creeds, ones that they would say and ones they are not even aware of, at all times. And these creeds, these beliefs, by the way, creed comes from the Latin for credo, which means I believe. These creeds animate our hopes and our desires and our decisions and our relationships. So having an actual creed uh, in hand is a way to acknowledge that we are this way that we are believing creatures, 
And it's, it's an attempt on, on the church's part to shepherd those believers. So uh, some of you might have heard C.S. Lewis talk about how you've never met a mere mortal because everyone is uh, an image bearer and charged with this God's grandeur and, and spirit. Um, you might also say, to paraphrase it, you've never met an unbeliever because all of us are believers in something, right? I can't help uh, when, when I sat down to start thinking about belief, what it is and how we have it. Uh, I can't help but think about this recent poem. Um, compliments of Anna Gasmerian gave me this Christian Wyman book. Um, sometimes I feel like you guys are going to have to give me like a quota on Christian Wyman or start taxing me uh, when, I, when I talk about him because he's very inspiring to me. But this poem is called, All My Friends Are Finding New Beliefs. It, I think in this poem, he manages in a really very Wyman way to detail all the ways that the people around him are constantly converting, whether it's to Catholicism or to the South Beach diet or to the new gods and new loves or old gods and old loves. He, his observations to me sound so familiar. They, they might even for you be personally true. I think he's nailed this human condition that we are believers through and through. He gets that faith is not as often taught as it is caught. It's not, it's more caught than taught. It's that faith is a product of what we want, what we are coming to think the world is like, maybe what we think the world will reward. In coming weeks, we'll explore each of the clauses, clause by clause, how the creed teaches us not so much what to believe. It, it does that too, but more so how to believe or, and who to believe in and, and what sort of world we find ourselves a part of. You see, like next week, I won't go too deeply into it, but next week teaches us that the world is fundamentally constructed by a Father Almighty. That means, A, that we're all family, whether we've treated each other like brothers or sisters or not. It also means we live in a universe that is fundamentally created. That throws us back on the story of Genesis, that there's a God who seemingly can't get enough of the goodness of it all and closes creation out with rest, not because God gets tired, but because rest is ingrained with how we are to live and move and have our being with God. Do you see how condensed these words are and how they start to unfold this big story for us? More than just helping us uh, to cure our belief decision fatigue, you know what decision fatigue is? They talked about how uh, Barack Obama um, wanted to fight against the decision fatigue because of all the decisions he had to make in one day that he would just wear the same clothes every day so that was one less decision to make. Uh, the creeds can do that for us, but more than just curing our belief decision fatigue, I think that the creed gives us a color palette to start to paint our worlds, right? Uh, Christian Wyman's poem, by the way, if you search for Christian Wyman's poetry, you will almost definitely search for Christian women. Um, autocorrect always does that. <laughs> Stay with it, it's worth it. Uh, Christian Wyman's poem, understands also that belief, becoming a true believer, 
has less to do with what we think and more to do with our allegiances. You know, our allegiances, of course, involve not just our heads, but our, our bodies and our time and our attention and our money and our relationships and our hopes. There's that line in there that uh, this friend that he knows has exercise regimen so extreme that she merges with machine. This goes way beyond the idea that most of us are comfortable with, even if we can't perform the exercises, that exercise is good and needful for my health. And become this person becomes almost a robotic adherent to the faith that by exercising, she'll change the actual composition of her being, right? Uh, in that little bit of how belief works. Throughout the New Testament, the word for belief in Greek is pistis, like uh, epistemology. Um, and this word is, it's really fascinating. It's so many people have full careers in New Testament studies around this word. But it, it's, it's so tricky because it, it bends in how it's used and should be translated. Um, most times our Bibles say things like faith, faith in Jesus, or uh, I believe and help my unbelief, or maybe trust is also a good word for, for this word pistis. But also this range of ideas like faithfulness, not just faith, but faithfulness. Fidelity is more long-term, knit-together, um, kind of virtuous behavior, or allegiance. These are all true and perhaps help, helpful translations of this word that mostly we flatly receive as faith. And sometimes faith feels like its own sort of work for us. Paul goes on and on about how our faith must interact with God's faithfulness. There are way too many examples to list like exhaustively here. But my, maybe my favorite comes from Galatians 2.20. And one of the reasons, um, aside from the fact that they're my personal initials that we, we use the Common English Bible so much, is because um, the translators get around the, uh, the kind of dual translation of faith and faithfulness. So um, Galatians 2.20 is translated here. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in my body I live, and here's the words, by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave himself for me. I think this gets it. Sometimes our heroic or maybe more likely our middling faith, us believing into Jesus' faithfulness, manifests in God's pledge to be with us in and through suffering. Jesus' crucifixion is the, is the foundation for our faith. Jesus' faithfulness begets our faith. It calls forth, it requires, it makes possible our faithfulness. So we believe into a faithful God who makes it possible for us to be faithful people, even in and through suffering. This is to pledge a sort of allegiance and when you pledge allegiance to one thing, when you say one person is Lord, you say the, any other person is not. You can't have two 
simultaneous gods. It means that you have to rule out or subdue all the other things that are constantly vying for our allegiances in big and small ways. Good things and really insidious bad things. So when we say we believe, when we, when we join all of our I believes into this big we believe, it's a powerful statement of allegiance against the powers of sin and death which continue to rear their ugly heads in the form of violence and hate against God's creation. So to be crucified with Christ so that we now live in our bodies by faith and the faithfulness of the Son of God who loves us and gives himself for us, it means that we are also crucifying any of the other things, any of the other ways of conceiving faith or faithfulness. I think about that this week. I've just, probably some of you have felt this too. Um, like point blank, this is why the white supremacy that we've seen on our screens this week, and, and it's been so necessary, but so awful to have that video available to watch over and over. Um, it should haunt us, but it's also such a terrible thing. It's the, the, the death, I'm of course referring to the death of Ahmad Arbery. That's why white supremacy is so destructive. It's not just, it's especially, but not just destructive to black bodies, but also to the very soul and witness of the church. To hold anyone or anything or even some vague idea of supremacy in our imaginations, in our hearts, even in a small corner of our heart, above the crucified and risen King Jesus is a heresy. It's a heresy because Jesus arrives to us, God with us, God in brown flesh, anointing to preach the good news to the poor and freedom to those in captivity, is it, it, to, to, to say that you believe that and, and to, to have any vested interest or stake in, in any sort of supremacy, let alone white supremacy, is a heresy. I've been sitting with this all week. It's sadness and it's sickness for us because I, I just watch my two sons, Titus and Simeon, play together. And, and when, I, when I'm watching them play together, I know that one of them is in fundamentally more danger than the other. And, and it makes me grapple. It makes me attempt to join in the crucifixion of the ways that I've been catechized into that world where that is true. The ways that it's, it's helping me come to grips with ways that I need to believe into Jesus for a, a better world, for another world. Ways in which being crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, means to actively seek justice for those who are left out or kept down. But it also means putting to death some of the beliefs that I have about myself and my country and the way things work. Beliefs about our virtue and our innocence. When you start to frame faith in this way, less as an idea and more as an allegiance, God starts to do some pretty intense work at stripping away some of the things that you've thought were fundamental that, you, that you're used to pledging allegiance to. I'm not just talking about a flag, but also a way of life that is far too satisfied with watching black man after black man 
needlessly die to reinforce the way things are. Like it should, it should bother us all um, that the um, that the approximation was that the was that anyone's body and life is more important than um, some property that was allegedly stolen, right? Like <laughs> it's all of these things seem apocalyptic and re revelatory as to what's really going on in the, the sustaining logic. This is this is one thing that I didn't think that I was going to get into when I started thinking about the Apostles' Creed is a way that it was going to mess with and call into question and maybe call onto the carpet some of the things that I believe about the way the world works. I want to close with some words from several weeks ago in John's Gospel in the lectionary text when Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas um, begs to see Jesus's hands and feet inside because he can't muster belief in and of himself. He, he can't, he can't even just see to believe he needs to feel and touch. And so Jesus gives his struggling friend the gift of touching the marks of his suffering in death so that his friend could believe. And John writes to commend our faith with in our faith uh, John wants to commend is a faith seeking understanding. It's, it's before we understand anything, we have to even have the sort of faith to come to Jesus to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And because I, I think implicit in there, John is writing a, a good news account that knows that understanding rarely seeks faith. Faith seeks understanding, but understanding rarely seeks faith. Having it all together is hardly a good on-ramp to growing in our faith and faithfulness. Or building on your own best idea about how the world works is going to have pretty tragic results. We need to return to this baptismal formula where we die in Christ and are raised to new life, a new consciousness, and a new understanding about who we are and how this world works. So John reports, then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in the scroll. But these things are written, and, and here's what I wanted to close with. These things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. You will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. My dear, as Wyman says, beautiful, credible friends. I think that's, that's what we're able to be, is beautiful friends who are able to believe. This is my prayer for us too, that we will believe more and more into, that we will get better and better at pledging our allegiance in our lives to God's Son who saves us. And that this believing will give us life. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, um, come to us in our unbelief and let us feel your empathy, your suffering with us, your compassion you're being with us um, in 
death and uh, uncertainty and open our eyes to you, who you are and um, how we are, we're joined with you inextricably. Help us grow in that uh, faith so that we might know your faithfulness more and more. Uh, thanks for um, the gift of your grace that even sets us on this journey. Thanks for the of your mercy that forgives us when we um, give up or uh, run away. Uh, call us back to yourself and we give you thanks. Amen.